so am I the leader since I'm recording? I guess so. <laughs> Woohoo! Fearless leader! <laughs> Fearless leader. That's right, you can call me the leader for the whole show. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. You're fantastic at coding, but do you have an action plan to take it to the next level? The upcoming book, Next Level Freelance, will help you optimize your freelance business for happiness. The book is packed with actionable steps to make more money, case studies, tips to find more clients, and exercises for you to establish your desired lifestyle. Extras include nine interviews with freelancers who make great money while enjoying great work-life balance, videos on strategies to find quality subcontractors, and videos on making more free time by outsourcing your daily tasks. Check it out today, nextlevelfreelance.com. Welcome to The Freelancer Show, episode 72. Today we're going to talk about the power of no. And we have Eric Davis joining us. Hi. And Ruben Lerner, and I'm Curtis McHale, filling in for Chuck today, because he's, I don't know, he's off probably sitting on the beach somewhere, not doing much. But like I said, today's topic is the power of no. As we've been coming up to the book club, I've been reading the Getting Things Done book, and I think the thing that's continually been impressed on me more and more and more is that so many of the issues or all these tasks and 9,000 things that are flying at us are just the power of no. Yeah, I, I actually even used it yesterday in my Instapaper queue with 97, 97 articles and decided I'm never going to read half of these. Why did I even put them in? And just said no to them all and jumped down to like 25 of actual real articles that I will make time to read. What about you guys? Eric, have you ever, or have you used no, or have you, I guess, not overcommitted yourself? No. <laughs> Thanks. Oh yeah, I, <laughs> I have to do that a lot. Um, I just, while you're talking, I open up my Insta paper and God, uh, maybe a month ago, I actually went in there and there's a button. I've been afraid to hit it. It basically says delete everything that's older than 30 days. Um, I've had Insta paper stuff in there that came from tags that I had in Delicious, which were wow. from like 2005, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 2006. That I didn't I've, know there was that button. That's just on the web view. Yeah, uh, there's a. I manually deleted all mine. Dang it. Oh yeah, look for an archive all. It's on the right side. But yeah, like I've I overcommit stuff. I've had times where I've had over a thousand items on my to do list, and you know, in the getting things done stuff, like that's not really good. But it's just kind of like I dump anything in there, and I commit to things, or I'd have an idea, and you know, if I'd actually like thinking about the idea, I'd commit to it and put it in my to do list, and then. You know, six months, 12 months down the road, I'd realized, yeah, I'm probably not going to do this. And I delete it. But, you know, I was basically adding 50 or 60 things a week to my to-do list and wasn't really getting through anything. So I've had this problem. I still have this problem, but I've kind of, uh, I guess, watched my commitments a lot more. I, I don't, I say no, unless it's like something I really, really want to do. Yeah, I've actually taken like for new product ideas or something. I just have uh, an Evernote and create a note for them, tag it with product and plug it in there instead of keeping it on my to-do list to tickle me later and I let myself spend 10 or 15 minutes actually fleshing out the idea a bit and then I put it away and next time I'm coming to a product I can dig through all those and then move one into my to-do list to actually work on. Wow, I, I, I wish I were as disciplined as you guys, although I've definitely gotten better over the years. I mean, well, look, there, there, are, different, there are different aspects to know. So, so far you guys have been talking about uh, just sort of things that seem interesting to read and, and useful to read even and things to do. And so I basically have this one big file called to do, not surprisingly, 
it's just sort of like a growing, growing to-do list. And once every, oh, I don't know, four to six months, I sort of go through and prune. And I say, I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to look at this. And I do something similar. I don't use Instapaper or anything like that. But I just have a ridiculous number of tabs open in my browser at any given time. And the ones in the far left are the ones that I opened, you know, two, three, four months ago that I said, oh, I really should read this. And once again, every so often, sometimes when my browser crashes and doesn't remember, and uh, sometimes... Uh, <laughs> Uh, some, sometimes because my you know my browser crashes, and sometimes because I just decide to delete things, that I go through and I say, okay, I'm never going to look at this. But it is definitely an empowering sort of feeling to say, wow, you know what? I'm not going to spend time on this. I'm going to spend time on things that are actually profitable for my business or useful for my family or useful for me personally. Yeah, I actually just, I even wiped the slate clean two days ago with OmniFocus. I know I've written on my blog, like trying to figure out how to do my to-do list and and I yesterday just wiped it totally clean reset the database on the server and said here's the new thing that i will do not all these old epic things and all these reminders that are nine thousand things i need to make harder choices up front before i put them in my to-do list yeah that's it's kind of a smarter way to do it (laughs) the big thing is like if you i mean this i i learned getting things done a while ago and so that's where i'm coming from with this but it's if you want to like go through and process things quickly and like you know you have a stack of papers or potential to do items like most of the time your goal is to like get through that stack and so that means loading it into your to do list and the problem like you said is like you end up with 900 things in your to do list and it's it's kind of a balance like you might have to like instead change it to take 5 minutes on each item to think about it like should i really do this is this the right thing for me and then if it is put in to do list but that kind of five minute thinking kind of affects like how fast you're going to get through that pile. And so you taking more time up front to think about something might actually cause you to get backed up and you might kind of have problems of, you know, the stuff you haven't looked at yet and you need to go through and process. And that's, that's the problem I've had is I've, I've slowed down and it means that I always have like a, a basket over here that's full of stuff that I need to look at. And I get worried about, Oh, is there something in there that's actually going to blow up in my face in a little bit? Right. Well, that's the thing. I, I, I'm always worried that um, there's something that if I, well, let me put it a more positive spin on it. Almost always when I read something, when I read a blog posting, when I read an article, there's some nugget in there that I'm going to use and usually use with a client within a week or two. Um, it, it's, it's amazing how often that happens. And so I'm always nervous. Well, if I don't read this, if I don't understand it, then I'm going to lose out on some insight that I can give to a client. But you know what? There's just so much passing in front of me all the time and so much that I'm reading that maybe I will miss out on something, but I can't drive myself nuts over it. And I can't spend six hours a day reading blog postings just because it might help out a client. Well, I think that even like that comes back to recognizing just-in-time learning, which I have been listening to on the podcast. I can't remember, and I'll dig out the link for the show notes where they talk about, like, even when you're setting up a new site, do you worry about what type of pop-up works the best, or do you get the site set up? Like, if you're thinking nine steps ahead of where you need to be now, where you are now, then you're just wasting your energy, right? I know nine times out of ten when I've decided, I'll just, I'm not there, so I'll figure it out later. Like, the answer comes across my desk, and I don't have to look it up. I don't have to spend all that time you know, digging through because I said, again, I said no to the task today. And I said, oh, you know, that's not, not something I need to worry about now. I, I would say you're mostly right on that. My one counterpoint would be... No, I'm all be... right. I'm all right. <laughs> no. That's what happens when you're in charge, right? Uh... That's right. I'm the boss today. <laughs> 
uh, Chuck, go back, go back. So <laughs> I, I would say the, 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 the one counterpoint is, I mean, I do a lot of training and teaching. And so I'm constantly like, there's never twice that I teach the class exactly the same way, both because I'm fiddling around with things and because I say, oh, you know, there's this one little point that if I were to add it, I think would put things into better context. And those additional points and perspectives, I would say half the time come from people asking me questions as I'm teaching. But the other half, when I'm just sort of, you know, reading blogs or, or articles, and I say, oh, you know, that's really an important point that would make everything better. But again, I can't drive myself nuts over it, right? I mean, <laughs> if, if I were to worry about every possible thing that I could teach all the time, then I'd just be, well, I'd just be sitting and reading all the time and never actually do anything. Yeah, fair and, enough. That's why I, you know, chalk my Insta paper queue down to the ones that I really am going to get to and all these other ones that are, oh, that might be interesting. I might learn something. I just said, no, like, I'm not going to bother, right? I'm not reading six books at a time either. I'm reading one. I'm going to read it all the way through in it, and I will learn one or two things, right, out of it. Right, and this is clearly the power of editors and editing as well, right? Like, you know, you, it, it might be fun to read all news from all over the world all the time, but no one's going to do that. So you read a newspaper or a magazine that's edited according to your interests or tastes or needs. So I guess what has uh, or what issues have you had when you haven't said no? I know I'm sitting with two client projects right now that are mildly interesting for decent clients. I just should have said no to them at the beginning, and I didn't. And I look, keep looking at them and think, Ugh, I don't want to do that. So I'm expending mental cycles every day saying, I don't want to do it, and working on the things that I do want to do with these things hanging over top of me. And the odd email coming in from the client asking where we are. Well, I mean, you know, you've already committed to it, so you kind of have to finish it up unless you want to cancel the contract or you don't get out of it that way. But it's whenever that happens with me, I always just try to you know, figure out what went wrong. Like, was it, I had a gut feeling going into it that it wasn't going to be good or was it going into it, it was fine. And then some event in the project happened and made it go downhill and basically just try to identify that. So next time around, you know, I, I can watch for that specific red flag and it, you know, it's hard because it doesn't help you right now and you still kind of got to slog through it. But, you know, maybe in the next project that comes around that's kind of teetering on the edge will help you figure out, like, this is a yes project or this is a no. Right. I mean, uh, when I, 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 was, I was telling you guys uh, before we started recording that uh, I got this piece of advice years ago when I started consulting. And the guy said, oh, you should, you should always take whatever you can, take whatever work comes your way. And so I did that for a few years, and I found I was just completely overcommitted and overcommitted on things that were not really in my area of expertise or interest and with clients who were not so great. And so over the years, I've gotten much better about sort of identifying clients where even if the people are interesting and nice, and even if the technologies might be appropriate, it's just not a good fit. And so I try during my initial consult with them, my initial conversation, to try to feel them out and see, are these people really the sorts of folks that I'm going to want to work with for the long term? Because um, I would much rather have a long-term relationship. Most of my clients turn out to be long-term, even if it's only a few hours a month here and there. Um, and so I've gotten better about sort of turning it off but yeah i mean as eric said like sometimes things will change in the middle uh, i had this client i guess it was about a year or two ago where after a few months and things were going pretty smoothly they hired a ceo and the ceo was just disastrous i mean he was certainly disastrous in my eyes and so um you know i, I finally got up and left there and i was very happy that i did that but at the beginning it was fine at least yeah at least one of my clients was an existing client that was awesome and is awesome to work with but the new they had someone else do development in the middle, and I don't even know how their site runs currently because I cannot get it to run on any server that I own. And so I've just shut down enough errors that I can do a little bit of work in one portion of it without touching anything else. And that's 
like that's the best I can do. So that was certainly something that came up in the middle, and maybe I should have stuck to my guns better on saying, you know, nope, we got to do code quality, and if it's not there, then I just can't do the work for you. Yeah, and another thing with no, like the more you say no, the better you get at it. Kind of at the first, I, you know, I was very wishy-washy. Like I would be like, well, I don't really want to. And, you know, if someone pushed me hard enough, I would basically agree to do almost anything. And, you know, as I started like kind of growing and figuring like I need to start declining stuff that's not a good fit for me, I got better at it. And now like I'm pretty much no is like my default response to most things, uh, like commitment wise. Uh, it's only if something's like, gonna be really amazing that I actually switch over and say yes and it's weird to be like that but at the same time that lets me really focus on the few really good things that I know are gonna be you know awesome for me or the company or my clients and there's I'll have it in the pick but there's a a blog post by Derek Sivers that's about this that's basically it's uh you know you you have two options you either have a no or a hell yes option and if it's not a hell yes it defaults to no and that's I don't remember I read this years ago, and that's basically how I keep approaching a lot of these things, especially the bigger, kind of more transformational type decisions. And how did you move from that, like when you were at the beginning and weren't well known, like from, I guess, having to say yes to more stuff that wasn't hell yes, and into getting stuff that's only hell yes? Because that's a difference. Like when, when I was starting, I just emailed a bunch of businesses around and said, hey, I can do a website for almost nothing, right? And I got one or two decent ones in there and then just kind of kept upgrading. How did you make that transition? Yeah, I mean, that's how I started. Like I was, you know, the quote hungry freelancer. And, you know, when I started, I was, I've been doing Rails for two or three years at the time. And so I, I actually had, you know, several sites in production doing, you know, I knew what I was doing basically. I wasn't like a newbie, but my first few projects I took in PHP because I just didn't have the confidence to say, you know, like, yes, I want to set that project or no, that's not a good one for me. And so I was, I was picking up anything. Like I even had one project. The first one I said no to was actually like someone writing some PHP program, not even a web program, just a program to connect to FTP sites and download stuff. And it was like, there was like, I think it's something I found on Craigslist for like, you know, they had like a budget of like under 500 bucks. And I was like, well, it's money. And, you know, I, I can use the money and I really didn't need it. Like it was more of just me feeling like I needed to fill my plate. And it ended up, I think it took about a year, maybe maybe a year and a half of doing kind of the bottom of the barrel projects before I realized that I was getting stuck there. I wasn't actually doing rails. I wasn't actually growing and I was hating what I was doing. I was hating all the freelance stuff. And so I ended up kind of just starting to just decline it and looked for, you know, the one or two hell yes type of projects. And eventually I found one that made me just feel so much better, a lot more you know, a lot more desire to work and grow. And then I found another one. And then it just, once you kind of get into it, once you have the, uh, not the attitude, but the kind of the feeling like, you know, I could do this. I know what I'm worth. I know what I can, what goals I can accomplish. Like people can see that and then you'll actually be picked up for a lot more projects. And so it just, for me, it just started with one and it started to spiral up. And now I'm not doing any PHP or any projects I don't want to do. Yeah. But I think, I mean, I think that's an important point though, that a lot of people, when they start off freelancing, First of all, they might not, uh, oh, I, I would say most of all, they, they just don't have the luxury to be able to say no to projects, or at least they don't feel like they have that luxury. You know, <laughs> you decide you're going to go freelance. If you decide to go cold turkey, as opposed to slowly but surely easing into it from a salary job, then that means you have to pay for food, you have to pay for the mortgage or rent now. And so you're going to take whatever projects you can. And I don't know about you guys, I've certainly been there where I said, oh, I, I'm just going to take this project even though it's not a great one. 
but I, I agree that at a, at a certain point it comes to it, when it becomes a trend when you're taking things because you have to or you're capitulating on price to a ridiculous degree because you have to that probably points more to a, a marketing problem than anything else yep I also I remember I, I had a I had someone working for me until uh, I mean I, I still have one person working for me but the second person who was working for me I guess about a year and a half ago uh, he was between projects and he said oh what you know what are we gonna do and I said, don't worry, you know, in this business, something always comes up. And literally within an hour or two, I got a phone call asking if we had uh, capacity to work on a project. And so that's, that's one of the things also that you can say no because you will be able to find something else. And the confidence of knowing that I will find other projects, even when a big one goes away, has been a, a big change, sort of a sea change in my mindset over the last few years. Yeah, that it took years to get there, right? Right. It took years, and I'm not sure if it really points to any difference in my consulting or my networks, although certainly it really helps that sort of people know me as a, uh, you know, especially a Rails guy, Rails and Postgres, and so people sort of call me out of the blue, which is a very nice feeling. But I think it's really largely a mindset as well, that I now realize this sort of thing will happen, or I realize that I can find work, and I don't need to take the first thing that comes my way at a discounted rate just because, oh my God, what am I going to do? Yeah, like I'm in that position now, even looking three or four weeks out, I'm not super full, but I got three or four inquiries in the last couple of days that, you know, one of them comes through and that means I'm full till the end of September again. But it took a, it took me quite a while to get to that point as well to realize I could say no to some of the ones because more stuff was going to come. Well, there's another aspect, which is kind of the risk level. Uh, when I first started freelancing, it was because we moved from California up to Oregon where, you know, we knew no one up here. And so we had the big move. I basically quit my job and my wife transferred. And so just personal income wise, like we were pretty tight. Um, and we, you know, we had some money in savings, but not a whole bunch. And so, you know, the first few months of freelancing, it was like counting pennies, like making sure, you know, we could pay all the bills and, you know, I can keep doing this business and I didn't have to go and get another job. And I, you know, even though I was taking kind of bottom of the barrel projects, projects I didn't care for, that did let me build up the actual business side of the savings. And so over time, as that grew and got large enough, then I was able to kind of fall back on that. Like if I was going to have a month where I'd either have to take a project that I would hate, or I would be doing nothing and actually, you know, dip into savings for a couple hundred bucks, I could actually dip into savings and not, you know, take on the very, very worst stuff. And so, you know, over time, being able to kind of make a bit more decision because I had that cash behind me to back me up as a safety net, um, I was able to kind of level up the projects I was doing. And then, you know, that's basically how I continued it now. Like where I'm at is between the savings we have and then the savings my business has, I can take what projects I like and I can decline ones that have even the slightest inkling that I think there's going to be a problem, you know? And so having some kind of safety cushion and it could be savings, it could be uh, maybe you have a spouse or a significant other that has uh, a regular income like that can actually help out a lot too and let you be a bit more picky. So you know, if you are, like, say you're just freelancing at, on the side, your day job might let you pick the most, you know, the top most project that you want when you're freelancing, because if you don't get it, you're still eating, like, you don't have to really worry about it. Yeah, I think lots of new freelancers jump out way too early, because they're super excited. I was smartish and waited till I had three months income. But looking back, I wish I had waited till I had six months. And that would have been the difference of four weeks, approximately. 
to finish off the one big project and I would have had six months income saved because I burnt through the three months income faster than I anticipated at least faster than three months in other words <laughs> uh, no not faster than three months oh. but I figured you know three months that's good and I'll, I'll get some projects and I had one big project but if I hung on for four more weeks in a job I didn't really like I would have had six months income and yeah I just would have had a lot a better safety net I know in my first year freelancing there was at least once that I can remember driving to the next town over to pick up a check to deposit it so I could pay myself that night. So if I had waited for the six months, and that may still have happened, I suppose, but if I had waited for six months, again, said no to myself, no, you can't leave yet, just hang on for a little bit, you know, be an adult and, and delay that gratification, then I, yeah, things would have just been a little easier, would have had more of a cushion and maybe wouldn't have had to take all those or some of those bad projects or lower quality projects. Yeah, I, th I think having a financial cushion is is really important and useful. I mean, for the last number of years already, uh, we've been taking money out of our like, a personal account every month, and I'm pretty sure you can do this easily outside of Israel. I mean, you know, I've, I've heard banks are advanced in other countries as well. You know, uh, we're getting when there when they don't collapse. <laughs> but basically, we we have a, a we have an automatic withdrawal from our personal account every month. Uh, where we take some money and put it into a long-term savings plan. Um, and it's not earning amazing interest, and we're talking to people about sort of how to invest it better and smarter. But for now, at least it means if we need to, we have a number of months of income there. And we started doing that because I've incorporated, so I have a separate corporation for my own personal account. So the corporation is doing that also. And so right now I'm in Chicago, and I've basically taken two months off to try to push ahead as much as ridiculously possible on my PhD dissertation. And it means that basically when I get back home to Israel... If we need to dip into that savings, we can, and we have something to go with. And that's just, yeah. you know, given, given an incredible feeling of freedom and power that I, I certainly didn't have a number of years ago. Well, this is when we're talking with uh, Stephen from Less Accounting, how I mentioned, like, I do my, my accounting every week because it's really not that hard. Um, and I can spot stuff. And, like, basically, every, I do it every week, and then every month I do kind of a more higher roll-up of stuff. And I use that to figure out, like, okay, how's the savings going? You know, am I spending more than I need? And it lets me really quickly like see if there's going to be a lot of expenses. And so like this summer I'm taking a lot of time off. So I'm seeing like, Oh, I need to start pushing, you know, pushing my marketing a bit more, maybe to get a client after summer or, you know, maybe do some book sales or that sort of thing. But, you know, compared to some freelancers I've seen that will go six months or even an entire year before they even look at their books. Like they wouldn't know that they've been in the hole $200 a month and now their savings account is about to die. Okay, well, I, I feel good then that I'm not the, the worst of the bunch. <laughs> I mean, I at least I at least know how much we've got in our personal and our corporate accounts, and more or less where the trend is. And also, you know, I I I don't have that many clients. I say in a given month have I don't know, three to seven who are paying, uh, and I know roughly how much each of them owes me and and what's going on with that. So I can have at least uh, some sort of estimate there. But reviewing your book, books every week actually sounds like a very smart thing to do. Also, I assume you can then see the trends, well, as you said, and then decide what you have to do during the coming weeks to make up for that. Yep, and that's why I do it every week. It's not—I mean, I don't—I don't love it, but I don't hate it. It's just something to do, and so you know, doing it every week it, it feels best for me. It gives me the the most information for the least amount of effort and pain. Right. Why don't we move into talking about some red flags that mean an instant no? For me, I—I uh, <laughs> I sat with a client local client and uh, I told them that they kept talking about SEO and I told them that if they wanted to do that then they needed to write a blog post article every week and they needed to commit to that and they looked at me and said I would never set a goal like that because when you fail 
you just, you know, you feel bad about it. And I looked at him and said, well, you know, I think this meeting is over. Thank you very much. Because I'm not willing to work with someone who's not as invested in their site as I am. And I didn't really think a blog post a week was that much when he had like four employees who could write it and, you know, they got new product in all the time. So that's one of my red flags. Ruben, what's one of yours? Slimy people. Uh, I, I, as in, I mean, like slimy, they live in the sewer or slimy? <laughs> like they slimy, have a lot like of product I... in their hair. <laughs> neither, neither. <laughs> so no greasers for Ruben. Okay. There you go. Yes, yes. I don't. I didn't do a lot of work in the fifties. <laughs> Nor did I, mean, I, but that's age at least. So. I'm not that old, boy. <laughs> Back in the Mesozoic era, when I was designing websites, I mean, basically, yeah, I always have an initial meeting with people, uh, either on the phone or ideally in person. Sometimes even both, uh, and I try to feel them out. I try to feel: are, are these people just like, I don't want to say fly-by-night operators, because they might even have a decent business. But are these the sorts of people who I'm going to want to work with and whom I can trust to uh, really even be my partners if I'm doing the technical stuff and that I'll want to spend a lot of time with and who will respect me also, respect me as a professional? And sometimes I've gotten the feeling, no, no, these people just don't know what they're doing. Or even if they do know what they're doing, they're just not the sorts of people I'm going to want to work with. Uh, and unfortunately, I'm not always uh, the best judge of character on that. Uh, there was a guy a few years ago who had me do some work for him, and everything seemed great. And then I found out he was indeed a, a con artist and fly-by-night operator. Uh, and I had been taken, I mean, I was taken for very, very little money when he didn't pay. It wasn't worth going after him. But I found out that lots of other people had been taken in by him also. Of course, as I mentioned to you guys before we started recording, my wife figured this out right away, and she was like, I told you you shouldn't work with this guy. But basically, I, I, since then especially, I've become attuned to, are these people actually decent? Are these people I'm going to want to work with? And you're attuned to that because you ask your wife and just listen to her? <laughs> um, no, I think, I think I try to listen more to what their experience is, what sort of, where they see their company, how they treat their people. Uh, there was once a company I spoke with a few years ago, uh, like a, a much, much larger consulting company, um, where they do a lot of work with like municipalities and that sort of thing. And the guy, the CEO, was incredibly proud of the fact that he had this spreadsheet showing how profitable was each employee down to like the number of hours, the number of dollars they had brought in. And it was clear that he was just gleeful at squeezing every last little bit of money out of his employees without regard for their actual pleasure or their welfare. And it was clear that I was just not going to want to work with this guy. Eric, any red flags? Yeah, I got, I, I have a document that I actually add to as, you know, I basically learn and discover like, oh, there's a new red flag. I've talked about a few and we had another uh, episode. It's like episode 54, um, where some of the people on the panel that aren't here today went through some of the things, but I think there's two big red flags for me that come up quite a bit. Uh, the first one is like, does the client respect me? And I've actually had potential clients cuss at me because they didn't like my contract. You know, and it was during a contract negotiation phase. It's like, you know, the, all those things are, they're cussing at me about were negotiable, but, um, they basically started cussing at me on the phone while they're driving. And I basically flat out told them, look, you're not, it's, this isn't going to work out. Um, I'm not going to work with you. And they threatened, I don't know, threatens a strong word, but they basically threatened me that I would never work in this industry again because they know people <laughs> and, oh, people. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's so, a red flag. There also lack of being grounded in reality. Yeah, so that that's my first red flag. I they're the only ones that have ever done that, but it was such a strong red flag that like it's number one on my list now. The second one, it sometimes it comes up. It's not so much a red flag. It's more well, I, it's a kind of a cautionary one. 
when I go into a project with a client, I assume that I'm going to be the expert on the specific technical matters and maybe, um, you know, if there's like business processes around the technical matters and I'm more the consultant, whereas they're the expert on their business, how their existing processes work and what they need in their market. And so with that kind of set up, like if I gave a recommendation, you know, they can override it saying like, you know, their, their business works differently. But if they give, if they tell me something like, you know, we need to work like this, I can still suggest alternatives for like, Hey, maybe your process is a bit too complex. The red flag comes up is if they start telling me what I need to do. Like, you know, I've, I've had clients tell me how to write my SQL code and I, it's nice that they want to help, but at the same time, it really is showing that. Um, they don't respect that I'm an expert in the areas I know. And that kind of, you know, once again, it comes back to respect. Like if, if they can't kind of let me do stuff and I'll micromanage, then that's a huge red flag. And I don't think I've fired a client, but I've had some serious sit down conversations with them because of this sort of, uh, because of the situation. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I had this one client where everything was kind of smooth and they brought in this CEO after a few months and the CEO had come from a few other high-tech companies and he had a computer science degree, but he hadn't really been actively coding for a few years. And he looked at how I was doing, I think it was categories of articles or types of users, something like that. And he said, you know, the way you did this is totally unscalable. What you really want to do is bit masks and apply those to the database. I was like, okay, first of all, I really don't think that's a good way to do it. And second of all, we have maybe a thousand people a month visiting this website. I really don't think that scalability is a big issue. And this became a major point of contention between us. And not because I really care that much about BitMasks, although I did think it was a pretty dumb idea, but because, right, why was he muscling his way? Well, he didn't have enough to do as CEO. He also had to be supervising the coding. And didn't he bring me in as an expert? And it it really felt like a, a blow that he just didn't, trust me and wasn't he was going to be second guessing all of my uh all of my decisions yeah yeah the ceo's ceo's job is to direct the company not to you know be down in the mines every day working on stuff i had uh one recently too where i got a not quite directed at me but some profanity in an email and i there yeah, with a client i'm already working with and i wrote back and told them that if that if i saw that again i didn't care how they chose to speak amongst themselves but that is not how you spoke to me and in any communication with me and that was the single and single warning next time they would just get an invoice for the rest of the work and all their code. That was, yeah. If that had started like that, I just would have said no right up front. I, I think I'm, I'm willing to be a little more uh, liberal on that. Like if they want to curse at each other or in sort of casual conversation, it's not my style. But when they start attacking me, then <laughs> I would certainly draw the red line there. Uh, you know, it's a professional relationship. We're supposed to respect each other. We're supposed to work together. And, you know, you can get angry all you want, but get angry with my decisions. Don't get angry with me or just disagree with me, which is also totally okay. What was, what was their response, by the way, Curtis? I'm curious. Uh, they said, oops, sorry. Like, I, again, like, they want to talk. If we were out doing something, they swore here and there. That's not going to phase me. I don't swear by nature, you know, unless I whack my thumb with the hammer. There might be a, a few choice words at that instance. <laughs> Outside right. of that, I don't. And they said... Yeah, they basically went back and apologized. Ouch, A. Yeah, that's exactly what I say, Eric. Ouch, A, which is Eric. What's Eric just putting in chat, which I shouldn't be reading. <laughs> um, yeah, I just said that's not acceptable. Like, this is a professional relationship, and that's, yeah, that's what we do. And this is not how I expect my clients to treat me, and I won't accept, I won't accept it again. So, all right. So, 
Ruben, why don't you, I'll... since you have the next topic switch, why don't you introduce it to us? Um, well, I was actually, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get that. Oh, I just wanted to say one, one other red flag that I have uh, is people saying they just want a little bit of help, you know, an hour here or there, and that would be it. And I've just found the overhead associated with starting that is just, I wouldn't say it's the same as starting a real client, but it's pretty close. And it's so annoying because you go through all the same discussions and negotiations and contracts and coming in and this and that. And at the end of the day, you go in for two hours, talk to them, and that's the end of it. And it's just so not worth it. Um, so I always tell people, I mean, basically I even tell potential clients, I say, I like to work with nice people on long-term projects with interesting problems. And, um, each of those <laughs> interesting problems, everyone thinks they have interesting problems and everyone thinks they're nice, although I can, you know, decide otherwise. Uh, but long-term, I think puts it in the correct context that they should understand I'm looking for a long-term relationship that we'll both benefit from, not, oh my God, my server's having problems. Can you help me with it for the next hour? Yeah, that's something yeah. I want a client that wants like emergency. Oh, you're around all the time, right? No, I'm not around all the time. I am. I just say I'm not there. I'm not around on weekends, really. I'm not, right? I'm not around at like six o'clock to chat and I don't answer my phone. That's what I've actually found that helps with that, like, you know, the kind of the piecemeal work is I have a project minimum. Um, I think it's like a thousand a month right now. So if someone comes to me if only if they only want a few hours and it's below that minimum, I'm like, sorry, I have a project minimum because it's not, it's not worth the overhead to try to manage you as a client just for a few hours a month. And, you know, if you would, if you still, if you only want a few hours, like, here's some other people that might be able to help you. And just by having that and stating it as like, that's my policy, it's helped out a lot. And I, I think one client actually ended up where they're like, Hey, well, actually, let me, let me get back to you and I'll batch up some work. And so they actually had maybe a dozen, two dozen hours of work, but they were hoping to spread it out over a couple of months. And instead they just gave it to me in one chunk. I did it. And then they went off and used it. So if you can set a project minimum, you know, whatever you want, you can, you know, say it's in hours or in dollars. Um, I found that's actually really effective for kind of, kind of keeping it so you don't lose all that efficiency with the overhead. I actually changed my inquiry form so it didn't have a like below 2500 thing. <laughs> there was no it's 2500 and up was all the different ranges for possible pricing. And that actually meant I don't have to say no because I just didn't get inquiries below that range much anymore. That's very smart. And even if people contact you, it, it sends a clear message. You know, this is the sort of project I'm interested in right now. So I, 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 in terms of the next topic, I was, I was curious to know, are the, when I started consulting, um, I would half jokingly say that if someone calls me up and says, do you know technology X? I would say, yes, hang up the phone, read a book on technology X, and then go and try to help them out. And it actually works surprisingly well to, to some degree. But nowadays I'm a little more conservative, even a lot more conservative in terms of how much I'll, uh, how many new technologies I'll learn just for the sake of a particular client. So what do you guys have in terms of boundaries? Well, I'm pretty what, open. What you want to do. Yeah. So I'm pretty open, at least with the technology that I work with, PHP, WordPress, JavaScript, that stuff to say yes to things that I haven't exactly done before or that are a little different. But if someone said, Hey, oh, Ruby, if someone said, Hey, Curtis, I, you know, I hear you've done some Ruby, I'd say, very, very little at this point because it's been so many years since I've really dug into it. And to that, I'd say no and refer. But, you know, some, you know, a variation or something new to dive into in WordPress that's newest and latest release, I'll d dive into that without any issues. So what about like CakePHP or some other PHP 
framework thing where it's still PHP, but it's actually like not in the WordPress area. No, I'd probably say no at this point. I just don't think I don't think that's fair to a client, right? I'd say, could I figure it out? Sure. Could you pay me a lot to figure it out? Yeah, probably. But you can probably pay someone else less to, <laughs> that already knows it. And that's how I've approached it. You said it's not not my wheelhouse is what I've normally said. Yeah, and that's that's what I do too. Like basically, you know, I do Rails stuff, but for a while there was, you know, it was only Redmine and Chili projects. So if someone even came to me with like a generic Rails project, I would decline it. But now it's like anything where like the, you know sixty eighty percent of it is Ruby or Rails, um, you know, or Sinatra or whatever, you know, Ruby web app stuff. I do it, and then kind of the extra like you know, if there's additional libraries like you know maybe someone's used Backbone or whatever, which I don't have very good experience with or good you know good memories of i guess is another way to phrase it you know i might take it but you know i'll let them know up front that hey i i don't know this i haven't worked in it that much and so as long as the i don't know factor is like a minimal or like an add-on technology i'd be fine with it but if they came to me saying you know we want to use node.js and knockout um for a site i would say well i know knockout but i don't know node.js so i'm gonna have to pass on that right i mean uh, every project i do i guess this is true of every project you're always learning some new thing but the the core I found increasingly it's useful to just sort of stick to the core that you do know. Um, so right, I mean I'm also doing a lot of rail stuff, Ruby related things, a lot of Postgres related things. But just just this morning I got an email from someone saying, "So do you want to do a project in PHP?" Uh, and let's ignore the fact that it would require someone to be in house, and she's just trying to place a full timer. Uh, although I think she'd be willing to have a contractor there. I'm just sort of out of that world, and even if I could do it, it it's just not going to advance my consulting business the way I, I see it moving forward. Yeah, fair enough. So my kind of realm would be WordPress, I suppose, right? I'd be with anything there, themes, plugins, JavaScript, Ajax, PHP, any of the new JavaScript libraries in there. But there are certainly some things that I, even in that realm, that I say no to that are just not interesting. So some rescue projects that are really tiny, they're just not worth it, right? Because you end up fighting around bad code all the time without getting to write anything good. Right. Um, I mean, I'll tell you that with the, the training, every so often I'm approached and asked if I can teach people something in a, in a language that I know, but that I haven't taught, either that I haven't taught before, I haven't taught in a long time. So for instance, I used to do a lot of Perl training back when I was doing a lot of Perl development, but it's probably been a good five, six years since I taught any Perl classes. And so there's a company that was really begging me, please, 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 can you come and do Perl training for us? Because I'd done other training for them in the past. And I said, well, <laughs> I'll have to revise all of my slides and my exercises and this and this and this. I don't know if it'll really be worth it for you. But if you're willing to pay me to do it, I guess maybe, reluctantly. And at that point, like they, they realized that it was probably just best to go with someone who's an expert in it. All right, why don't we move on to picks? Ruben, what's your pick? Sure, so I've got... Let me just bring up that buffer. Oh, you're not ready? Uh, I, oh, I'm totally ready. Well, he has to get the towel from two months ago. <laughs> yeah, it's probably <laughs> on his old computer then, right? <laughs> please, please, it's an Emacs. What, you mean not everyone keeps picks in, their, in Emacs? Um, I'm sure there's like a... There, there should be a picks mode, right? <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, uh, three three picks... Number one, uh, I uh, I decided to invest uh, in a new keyboard for my MacBook Pro or an external keyboard. And after playing around a little bit and exploring a little bit, I got a keyboard from Dust Keyboard. Now they have a version that has no keycaps on it. Oh, not no keycaps, but no labels on the keys at all. That seems a little insane to me, even though I've been touch typing since I don't know the age of twelve or something. 
uh, since my parents forced to. By the way, one of the best things my parents ever forced me to do. I, and overall, I've been very happy. It's a little annoying that it's sort of external, so I can't bring it with me so easily. And the fact that it has a USB hub is nice, but then you have to plug it into both USB ports on your machine. So it's not quite as amazing as I would have thought, but the feel of the keyboard is pretty great. There's no doubt about it. It's not quite as loud and satisfying as the old IBM keyboards. I remember when I was in college, people would actually ask me to type more slowly so I would annoy them less as I was sitting next to them. So that's not going to happen with this. But it's it's definitely a much, much, much more solid keyboard than the one that comes with the Apple, uh, you know, Apple products by uh, by default. Uh, and then two blog postings that I saw uh, that are, I think, appropriate and interesting. One of them is uh, from the uh, always writing, always speaking, always doing things, uh, Patrick McKenzie. His latest uh, podcast from Calzumius is interesting in that it talks about how to move into products from consulting. It dovetails quite a bit with a blog posting that he wrote about, I think I picked a few weeks ago. And I just saw today uh, that there's a whole article on Pando Daily, which is a you know, Silicon Valley news service. Where they have a very, very long story about the Facebook platform and how it has uh, disappointed a lot of people, including people at Facebook. And I thought it was interesting uh, as someone who uh, not only has used the Facebook platform, but is also in- interested in implementing platforms in the future to see where they made mistakes and where they ticked off a whole bunch of people. Anyway, those are my three picks for this week. Eric. Okay, so I mentioned one earlier. Uh, it's by Derek Sivers. It's an old one. Uh, it's called No More Yes. It's either Hell Yeah or No. Um, it's a, I was looking, it's actually a very short post, but there's like, what, 521 comments on it. So uh, it's been around a lot. This is kind of where I got the idea from of like, you know, how to say no to a lot of things that really aren't the best thing for you. Um, second pick, uh, this past few days, I've been doing a lot of kind of video stuff, like actually, videos of me talking, um, you know, as opposed to like what we talked about in the last show of screencast stuff. And I, man, there's so much in that industry. It's like, it's amazing how much you have to learn. But um, I, one thing I found is actually the iPhone uh, is actually a really good camera. Um, it's actually was way better than anything on my Mac or the Mac camera. Uh, so much, in fact, like a lot of the recording software would actually stutter at 1080p. But recording on my iPhone is actually pretty nice. Um, there's an app I got. It's called Filmic Pro. Uh, basically, it's relatively inexpensive, but it gives you a whole bunch of options. And I was actually able to really play with it and make the videos look, at least what I thought, to be pretty professional for the, the experience that I had. So that's my pick. There's also a new app kind of related to it that was pretty sweet. Uh, I don't remember what it's called, but it's made by the same company. And what it let me do is I'd have my iPhone actually recording facing me, so you know, using the back camera. And then on my iPad, I'd be connected remotely and be able to control my iPhone zoom and all that stuff from my iPad. So it was pretty cool. It was like a, uh, that way I can actually sit there, get the whole shot composed because it was just me doing the videotaping. It was pretty neat. It was a bit laggy, but for, you know, I think it cost me like 12 bucks for both of them. It was totally worth it. So those are my picks. And my pick is going to be the Jaybird Bluebud Bluetooth headphones. Uh, we've mentioned once or twice, at least off air, but I do a lot of cycling. And they are excellent Bluetooth headphones. I occasionally, when I'm riding by uh, power lines that are above ground, get some some feedback or don't get a clear signal. But outside of that, they're super tiny and they last like six and a half hours. So I've taken them on a number of six and a half hour bike rides or even eight hour rides. And they last till the six and a half hour mark playing music the whole time. Super comfy. Uh, they're excellent. Uh, they're a little bit expensive. I think they're about $170, so you pay for it. But And they're waterproof. They're coated with uh, Liquipel, 
So I've ridden with them uh, even in the pouring rain once or twice, and they have been totally fine. Wow, that's pretty great. Uh, I love them. They actually have, uh, I guess, little special in-ear clips as well so that they stay in your ear if you're running and stuff, and you can mount them kind of over your ear as well so they're wrapped around the back of your head. Yes, Eric, I thought about you for running. <laughs> they're great. Yeah, I got these. I don't know what it's called. It's like it clips onto the actual older iPhone headphones, and it kind of gives you the over-the-ear. It works great, but they're, they're, I've been using them for over a year now, and they're plastic, so they're falling apart, and I don't think they work on the newer ones, so I've been kind of looking around at stuff. Uh, someone, I think Evan, a long time ago, recommended another type of Bluetooth thing, but it kind of sat around your neck, and so I was afraid of running, it would bounce around too much and fall yeah. out of your ears. This one has the two mounting options, one kind of down out of here and one up and over the back, and it actually has little cable ties, so you can slide it and it like sits pinned tight to the back of your head they're excellent and it'll up connect up to seven devices even Ruben. so you could use it on your mac or i have it on my phone and my ipad uh and my wife's phone as well and I just turn it on the house and open the device i want and say connect to this one that's it wow so they're excellent i guess that wraps it up today now we've had a little sporting talk as well um <laughs> that's it thanks for listening next guys week, next week is book club right Oh, yeah, that's right. Next week is book club. We're doing Getting Things Done, and we get to talk to David Allen. So put yeah, that on your well, to-do list. More along the lines of listening and taking notes as fast listening as possible. Listening and taking notes. <laughs> Just David Allen will expound for the hour next week. All right, take care. Yeah. Bye-bye.